Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 69. You know, I could make a number of very immature jokes about the episode number. I could make a number of very uh, inappropriate comments, but I won't because I'm a professional, I'm an adult, and I'm doing a podcast about very serious issues. But there is nothing silly about what is happening in the alternative media right now. There is nothing silly about what is coming around the corner in the United States, what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Latin America, what's happening in South Asia. These things are major, major issues. They're complex. They require careful analysis, studied analysis, and I don't know of any place on the internet that is more reliable, that is more consistently on point than Counterpunch. I personally have always thought that, and I especially think that now, considering the onslaught of propaganda against the alternative media and really looking at what it is that counterpunch signifies for us on the left. It is that bastion of muckraking, that bastion of free speech, and frankly, I think it is so critically important to support it. Uh, I support it myself. I donate every year, and I would urge people to do that as well. You can also, if you don't want to just do a donation, you want to get something out of it, that's cool. Get a subscription to the print magazine, an excellent way to support the program and to support this show, send them an email. Let them know that Counterpunch Radio drove you to uh, getting that subscription. It's a nice feather in my proverbial cap. And um, also positive reviews on iTunes. And I'm going to throw one other thing out there. Anybody who is tech savvy, who wants to contact me and give me any suggestions about ways that uh, I could be spreading this show around a little bit more efficiently, I'm open to that as well. Uh, obviously, we are a community here and I depend on people as much as hopefully they're depending on me to provide good content every week and this week is no exception. I'm very happy to welcome I guess for the first time onto this show but not the first time on one of my podcasts uh, Dan Kavalik. He is a labor and human rights attorney. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He is probably one of the best sources of analysis and information on Colombia and on issues in Latin America generally. Very happy to have him on the show. Dan Kavalik, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Eric, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on. So look, we have a lot to discuss, and as always, I feel like there's not nearly as much time as we would need, but I want to, you know, really focus on the situation in Colombia. You're an expert on that subject. You just recently had an excellent piece in Counterpunch that was dated December 14th, entitled Colombia, Peace in the Shadow of Genocide. Obviously, there's a lot uh, loaded into that title. So let's just begin unpacking that article and, and, and diving into this. Tell us about the recent developments that you're writing about and give us a little bit, for especially for those people who aren't as familiar with the situation in Colombia, a bit of the background on what's taken place in that country these last, dec these last few decades. Uh, great. So first of all, uh, you have... Uh, a 52-year-old uh, uh, internal conflict 
in Colombia uh, between the Colombian government and the FARC uh, rebels. Uh, the FARC are not the only uh, guerrillas in Colombia, but they are the biggest and the oldest. Um, and so uh, the recent attempts to make peace between the FARC and government have been very significant and very uh, – uh, they've worked very hard at it. They've been uh, – the FARC and the Colombian government have been negotiating in Havana, Cuba uh, for the last four or so years to reach an end to the conflict. And I want to pause for a second and 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 let that sink into folks. You know, those meetings could have been in Miami. Uh, those meetings could have been in Washington. They were in Havana, and they were in Havana because the Cubans hosted it. Uh, Fidel Castro, the late Fidel Castro, uh, was very much behind convincing the FARC to come to the peace talks. He was very important in bringing the parties together, as was Hugo Chavez. So. Uh, The peace uh, accords that were recently agreed to finally after these uh, several years in Havana owe a lot to the left in in Latin America, and I want to stress that very much. Um, So finally, uh, this past uh, August, the FARC and the Colombian government did sign uh, final peace accords to end the conflict. Uh, Over the FARC's objections, the Colombian government insisted that there be a national plebiscite to approve or reject the peace accords. And in October, um, that plebiscite was held. I was actually there uh, in the um, department of Cauca. And sadly, the plebiscite uh, rejected the peace accords by a very narrow margin of about 54,000 votes. Meanwhile, at least 4 million people were not able to vote on the coast because of uh, the hurricane. I believe it was Hurricane Matthew that was coming through. And so that was a devastating moment, um, but both parties worked very hard uh, in the intervening time to come up with a refined peace agreement that was recently signed and recently approved, this time by the Congress of Colombia, and it was passed unanimously. There were uh, president, former President Uribe's party did um, abstain from the vote, but it was uh, a unanimous vote in favor, and so that's brings us up to date. There's a lot. There's a lot to uh, go through there because, um, well, let me just ask this question. The vote was very close. It was contentious. Uh, with a vote that close, was there any discussion uh, in the country or even internationally from observers regarding any election fraud, election rigging, uh, nefarious uh, actions carried out by the right wing in order to try to sway that their way? Uh, what is your read on that, and what was the opinion and attitude on the ground about that issue? Well, all the polls leading up to it, all but one, there was one outlier poll, but pretty much all the other polls showed it was going to pass very decisively, and even the um, even the, uh, the the polls on the day of the election, the exit polls showed it was going to pass. So certainly 
the results did not not match up with the polls though we have seen that before right um now with that said uh piedad cordoba a very prominent leftist and peace activist in colombia he used to be a senator there she did right after the election she raised some concerns about um people being coerced into either not voting at all or voting certain ways i'm sure that happened but i think largely with that said i there wasn't a lot of talk about about fraud or about an election failure there was more discussion about or election day failure there was more discussion about again one yet the hurricane that hit uh coastal areas that to the extent they did vote voted in favor of the plebiscite had those people voted plebiscite probably would have passed uh pretty decisively in fact some people compared it to uh greg grandin i believe in the nation compared the hurricane to to a, a gabriel garcia marquez like event you know, magical realist event that threw off uh, the uh, the vote. But the other thing he had is a very aggressive um, uh, campaign by the no vote led by former President Uribe and also, strangely enough, by Human Rights Watch, um, who both were saying that the – uh, the first piece of court, I'll call it, the one agreed to in August, gave too much amnesty to the FARC. They also linked uh, the peace accords with gay rights, which didn't go over well with, with evangelicals. So there was a lot of you know, agitation leading up to the election, which was effective at, at, at swaying a lot of the voters. So um, – and again, Human Rights Watch uh, sadly amplified a lot of that. And again, Greg Rannon in the article I mentioned in The Nation um, – even queried whether Human Rights Watch was able to throw the election in favor of the no vote. So there were a lot of reasons why it went down, and it was very uh, it was very disappointing. I was in an area that was very much touched by the conflict, and it was those areas, by and large, that voted in favor of the peace accords. It was the areas less hit by it that voted against it outside of Bogota. Bogota did go for – um, the peace accords. And so it's obviously very disappointed to people who needed the peace the most. Um, in any case, uh, I think very much kind of like Brexit, maybe even the Trump phenomenon, people did, you know, very quickly, I think, wake up the next day and feel like maybe they had goofed. And I, my sense is that people do. Uh, support the peace accords uh, there is finally constituted and, and approved by the Congress. One thing that I'm, I'm curious about is uh, the ramifications of this. So you have this vote, you ha and this is, let's just stress this for our um, audience that might not be so familiar with this issue. This is a monumental agreement here. I mean, you're talking more than 50 years of I guess what you could call unironically low-intensity uh, civil war, and um, so you know this is really a landmark agreement. And so then that raises the question, of course, those people who were against it, what are the reasons? What are their stated reasons for why they were against it? And what, in your opinion, are let's say the more uh, realistic 
reasons for why they were against it. In other words, are there ulterior motives here? What's Uribe's uh, background in, in all of this? And what are the connections that we need to be making to understand how this vote went? Well, Uribe's main argument, again, was that it was too soft on the, on the FARC. I mean, that was the main argument he made. Um, it, it, kind of an ironic argument, given that he had presided over and, and negotiated the peace and justice agreement with the paramilitaries um, in, in the mid-2000s, which gave them quite a bit of amnesty and which, frankly, in the end, uh, human rights groups agree really didn't lead to the dismantling of the paramilitaries much at all. So his concern about it giving too much amnesty to the FARC appeared a bit hypocritical. But nonetheless, that was largely his argument, and I think it was – it did sway, again, a lot of the voters who – it really was no skin off their nose whether the war continued or not. The, you know, Uribe and, and the forces he represent represents, their view has been and continues to be that the FARC should be crushed. And he believed th that there was a military solution to the war. Now, most observers believe that that's just insane, that they're really uh, – while the, definitely the Colombian military with the help of the U.S., uh, strong help of the U.S., both the $10 billion it's given, also the direct CIA help that was given to the military to help target the FARC and to hit them with uh, smart bombs. Uh, certainly that 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 did to some extent weaken the FARC. There's no question about it, but it did not destroy them. And, and it, most honest observers do not believe that war uh, could or can be won militarily by either side. So you have basically a stalemate, which, you know, how long are you going to keep a stalemated war going. I mean, the cost to the civilians is just incredible. And eventually the FARC realized that. And, and, and again, Fidel Castro, probably the greatest guerrilla leader of all time also saw that. And he told the FARC it was time to seek, uh, a peace agreement. Um, I also want to note, and, and this is in my article just to remind people, I mean, the FARC has sought peace for quite a while in the eighties. They obtained a peace agreement in return for running political candidates in the form of the UP, the Patriotic Union Party, they laid down their arms, and as a result, three to 5,000 UP uh, candidates, activists were murdered by the paramilitaries. This led the FARC back into the armed conflict. So certainly uh, one can't say the FARC, FARC has not uh, extended the olive branch because they have. Um, and they certainly, again, given everything that's happened, believed that the only solution was a political one, and that is what they've been seeking for, for a number of years. And they've also been very um, uh, very much committed to the ceasefires when they have declared them. So uh, the FARC knew it was time, and I think, again, the sane people in the Colombian government also believed there had to be a political uh, solution to the war. But there are those both in Colombia represented by Uribe and also those in the U.S. Um, in 
various uh, sectors of the uh, of the U.S. government, military and intelligence, that believed they could win the war uh, decisively, militarily, and those people are still out there. In fact, there was another great ca- counterpunch article a few weeks ago, um, and I'm going to forget the name of the woman who wrote it i'm going to probably mispronounce it but i think her name is laura carlson oh yeah and, laura, laura carlson by the way listeners been on this show twice uh at the uh, uh institute of the americas uh if i'm not mistaken excellent excellent source of information about mexico and really all of latin america she's terrific and and, and she was his is the only author that i've seen they quoted a an article that was done for the U.S. Army College after the plebiscite voted the the agreement down in October, and essentially the, the authors of that piece believed that that was essentially a good thing. You know that 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 peace was going to be a bad deal for a lot of U.S. interests, including mining interest in Colombia. So there's certainly forces both in right-wing forces in the U.S. and Colombia that don't want peace. They want to, one, they would like to defeat the FARC and not make any concessions to them. But also they would like to use the war, as they have for over 50 years, as an excuse to engage in military operations, not only in Colombia but the entire region. And to destroy not only the FARC, but also the unarmed left. That's right. In, in Colombia. And so, you know, it remains to be seen, and, and that gets back to my article, and I'm not the only one saying it, obviously. Um, it remains to be seen which forces will win out. I mean, there's, so we now have a peace accord that, that uh, should lead to a dismantling of the FARC. And the exercise of of, of the FARC's uh, ability to to engage in political struggle as opposed to armed struggle, um, but we'll see if that happens, and we'll see if the peace is. I am certain the FARC will honor the peace. It is not certain that the military and the paramilitaries in Colombia will honor the peace. Well, and and that is really where I want to go right now in this conversation. I want to leave uh, for maybe for the second half of our, of our conversation, the U.S. angle, because there's a lot to discuss there. But focusing just on the domestic politics and some of the the let's call it the factions that have a vested interest in this conflict of course you mentioned Uribe um i think it would be fair to say that Uribe kind of operates in many ways uh sort of like as a kind of a a functionary of the deep state he he essentially sort of runs his own network of paramilitaries that are connected directly to him uh, and this of course is intertwined with much of what's going on in Venezuela. The Colombian paramilitaries have infiltrated Venezuela many times before. In fact Hugo Chavez at one point was prepared almost to go to war over things like that. Uh, so I want to ask you this question focusing specifically on Uribe. What is, what is it that he is getting out of this? 
this. Obviously, this, uh, the the war with the FARC is the sort of the raison d'etre for him to continue having these paramilitaries at his disposal. There are there is certainly talk about Uribe benefiting significantly from um, you know black budget, uh, CIA money, drug money, weapons smuggling money. Let's unpack a little bit about Uribe and some of the other players who really benefit from prolonging this conflict. So Uribe, let's talk a little bit about Uribe's history. He is from Antioquia, um, in particular from Medellin, um, which is famous, of course, if you're watching Narcos on Netflix, amongst other things, um, famous for Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel. Uh, the DEA was very uh, – has known for many years that uh, Uribe's family was very close to Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel. And in fact, uh, Alvaro Uribe himself was listed I think as number 84, the 84th top drug trafficker in Colombia by our own DEA. Okay, So he has been ensconced in Antioquia with the drug trade. Also with the paramilitaries, he created a paramilitary group in Antioquia known as Convivir, and so he himself – I think you know, many of us view him as a paramilitary leader himself. And when he came to power, his party and, and officials um, in his party were very ensconced with the paramilitaries. And so during his tenure as president, you had this parapolitical scandal, which showed that literally hundreds of 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 elected officials uh, were ensconced with the paramilitaries and were representing their interest in government. And he was very much the leader of this parapolitical state. And he still represents the sector of 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 political life that is tied to the paramilitaries. And and why? I mean, one, because he has an ideological opposition to the left, to trade unions, to human rights leaders, to liberation th uh, theologians. Um, in addition, though, he has interest with big agribusiness. Um, he represents interests, uh, the kind of the bourgeoisie in Colombia in the mining sectors uh, that – thrive on the paramilitaries being able to remove people from their land, mostly peasants, indigenous people, Afro-Colombians, to the effect that over 7 million Colombians out of about 50 million are internally displaced. There are now more internally displaced peoples in Colombia than in Syria. Colombia is the largest internally pop internally displaced population on earth. And these people have largely been displaced by extractive industries, big agriculture, and they've been displaced by paramilitary groups uh, working with the military. And so a huge fear of Uribe and his friends are that under these peace accords – uh, a lot of that land would have to be given back to the rightful owners, 
to the peasants, to the Afro-Colombians, to the indigenous, they don't want that to happen. They're making a lot of money on oil, on gold, on coal, on emeralds, let me on ask, bananas. Let, yeah. let me ask you something, Dan. I just want to interject, not to cut you off, but I think it's a relevant question here. Uh, is is the, um, let's say, the reclamation of land from which people have been displaced, is that actually built into these agreements, or is that more just kind of an uh, handshake agreement as part of a, a raft of agreements? In other words, is this set in stone in the language of the agreements? It is It is a goal of the agreements. It is not um, as set in stone in the agreements as uh, – as as folks on 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 our side would have liked, but so, it is certainly an aspiration of the agreement. But so, it is so, not. So it won't yeah. be enshrined in law, in other words. So they can sign this agreement, they can disarm the FARC, and they can just turn around and displace these people again, or just keep them the way they are. Well, yes, the answer is yes, and in fact, there's already a law on the books that that is supposed to have given land back to those displaced. And, and, and that went into effect several years ago, and, and less than 1% of the people owed land have gotten it back. Jesus. So – and that is a huge problem with these peace accords, and, and I'm speaking here in particular to you know U.S. citizens and Canadians too, by the way, because there's a lot of horrible Canadian mining companies in Colombia. But we have to be vigilant to make sure – that these peace accords are honored by the Colombian government, by the U.S. government, that land is handed back to people whose land has been stolen, that the displaced, the seven million displaced peoples are brought back to their, uh, to their territories. That is a huge, huge undertaking. And if that is not accomplished – you know, it will be uh, a failure, and, and I. The only way for it to happen is for people of goodwill to to put pressure, particularly on the U.S. government, to make sure that happens, to provide funding, to um, to help that to happen. You know, the the U.S. again, since the year 2000 alone, has given over 10 billion dollars of aid mostly military aid to destroy in Colombia to help carry out this displacement. And now we have to put pressure on the government to support the peace and to support the land to be given back to the rightful owners and to the indigenous and Afro-Colombians who have an ancestral right to this land. And so there's a lot of work to be done. Considering considering the sort of administration that's coming into power in the United States, it strikes me as somewhat unlikely, not saying that we shouldn't work towards it, but uh, extractive industries, minerals, mining, you know, the, these this is sort of the bread and butter of the incoming Trump administration, so I... I I hate to sound overly cynical, but certainly, um, you know, it's probably less likely that we could exert as much pressure there that as as maybe you can in another country like in Canada. Fair enough. I mean, I I can't disagree with you there. Uh, certainly in Canada, with the Trudeau administration, I'm hoping there will be some ability to do that. Again, yeah. I mean, uh, we're yeah, not, we're not fawning over Trudeau either. It's just you know. 
if you if you hold up a Trudeau government versus a Trump government, which is going to be more uh, likely to be somewhat receptive to the kind of human rights pressure that you're talking about, I, I would I would tend to say Canada. Yeah, well, I think that's fair enough. And truthfully, yes, it's very true. I'm not sure Clinton would have been an easier, you know, uh, oh, of course not. push no. either. Of course not. But yeah, you're right. It is going to be a long haul. It's going to be difficult. And and that's why Colombia needs our solidarity more than, than ever. Yeah. I mean, because, because what happens there, as you noted, Eric, I mean, what happens there affects the whole region. Well, and, and that's actually where I was going to go. I just, just to finish that point on Clinton, why would we think Clinton would do any of, you know, do anything like that when it was Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and their coterie of parasites that really launched Plan Columbia in the first place? The $10 billion that you're talking about, the human, the, the, the deforestation policies, the war on drugs, all of that. I mean, the Clintons are implicated up to their eyeballs in all of that. So I'm certainly not suggesting that Hillary would have been amenable to any kind of pressure of that kind either just to make that clear yeah no fair enough in fact there was a great article in a publication called fusion um web a web uh publication also about the the treacherous things the clinton foundation did yes in in colombia and you also have of course that 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 hillary supported the colombia free trade agreement as did obama yep. you know and again i don't want to cry over spilt trade agreements but the unions in the U.S. had the free trade agreement destroyed. We were able to beat it back under George W. Bush, and it was Obama that revived it. Yep. You know, and so, you know, it, it, it is a long haul for us uh, who want to find justice in Colombia, certainly. Um, before we go to the break, I want to I, I want to ask one more question. Returning to uh, Uribe for a second. Um, you know, Uribe obviously runs this, you know, sort of sub-state, I guess you could say. He has his own, essentially his own mercenary army. He has international diplomatic ties, obviously with the United States, but certainly with other players uh, in Europe and elsewhere in South America. Certainly he has uh, connections with the right-wing uh, leaders that have emerged in uh, Latin America recently, including Macri in Argentina and including the coup government in Brazil. So, you know, he's implicated in a lot of things, but I would say one of the principal um, roles or functions that Uribe serves for the United States especially is a very potent weapon against Venezuela. If you talk to Venezuelans who have a long history in these political struggles, they could tell you, they could spin you stories from here till eternity about Uribe and the paramilitaries, about what they've done infiltrating the border, about how they facilitate black marketeering, how they facilitate the drug trade, how they facilitate the smuggling of goods, the smuggling of currency, all of these things that are really plaguing Venezuela, that are dragging it into the existential crisis that it's in, uh, a lot of that is actually fomented by Uribe and people like him on the Colombian side of the border. So this is a Colombia issue, but it is a regional international issue as well. Well, exactly. Uribe is essentially running uh, uh, the north, the northern south america version of 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 operation condor he he is pinochet in civilian clothes 
yeah, I can't, I can't disagree with that. And uh, again, um, some of the major and devastating assassinations that took place inside of Venezuela over the last uh, couple of years, including the brutal murder of Robert Serra, who was the up-and-coming uh, leader of the next generation of the PSUV, the Partido Socialista, uh, Chavez's party. You know, he was murdered brutally by uh, people who are directly connected to Uribe, including Uribe's bodyguard. So, I mean, you have a very clear case in which the former president of Colombia, who's running these paramilitary gangs, is directly on the payroll of the United States, destabilizing the socialist government in Venezuela. Absolutely. And he, he was a man who George W. Bush considered a close friend, who Bill Clinton considered a close friend, and who got a warm reception from Obama in the White House. You know, we have not seen the last of Alvaro Uribe, sadly. No doubt about it. And just a, just a final point as well. Let's just talk very quickly if we could you mentioned the uh, numbers on the internally displaced which i didn't even know it was that many the fact that there's more internally displaced in colombia than in syria is really staggering quite a breathtaking uh, statistic um just to illustrate further we're talking somewhere on the order of 100,000 people disappeared and or killed in this you know i mean what's that time period we're talking 15, 20 years? Yeah, about the last 20 years. Well, we know that about 220,000 people at least have been killed during that time. And then you have another 100,000 or so disappeared. Oh, the 100, okay, so the 100,000 number is just the disappeared. Yes. Well, that, that I, I think that illustrates probably better than any words can the scale of the devastation of, of what's happened in Colombia and you know again we also should keep in mind what kind of groups are targeted it's not just the left broadly along political lines we also have to remember that the right wing throughout Latin America and Colombia is no exception is deeply racist and deeply uh, uh, you know um, concerned with exterminating indigenous peoples to the extent that they can uh, in Colombia of course the Afro Colombian population. Uh, we see this is pretty much exactly what you could see in Honduras, what you could see in other parts in uh, Central America in the 1980s, certainly. So this is in many ways a continuation of the ongoing dirty war by the empire. Well, it is. And, and what's frustrating, I grew up in the 80s. I was in college in the 80s. I was part of the anti-war movement in the 80s that was opposing the war in Central America. And as you say, the war in Colombia was happening then. It continues now. Where is the peace movement now who cared about Nicaragua, who cared about El Salvador, who cared about Guatemala? And as you mentioned in terms of the attempt to, to wipe out the indigenous people, according to our own U.S. State Department, about 65 out of 100 indigenous tribes in Colombia – are on the verge of extinction. That's according to them. Wow. And according to them, it's mining interests that are most responsible for that. Now, again, where is the outrage? Where is Human Rights Watch? Where is Amnesty International? Where is NPR covering this stuff? They're too busy they agitating for interventions against Venezuela, for Christ's sake. No, exactly. You know, uh, I'm sorry, President Maduro farts, and there's an, you know, a story on NPR about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where are the stories 
about genocide, real genocide, against indigenous peoples, against Afro-Colombians. Nothing. Absolutely. There's nothing. Absolutely, it's an it, it's an outrage. It's a it's an absolute outrage. Um, okay, on that outrageous note, we're gonna have to take a break. Uh, stick with us. I'll continue the conversation with Dan Kavalik. Uh, you should be following his work. He's a regular contributor to Counterpunch, and uh, I highly recommend it. So stick with us. We will be right back. Now over there in Managua Square, with America made bombs falling everywhere, kill women and children and animals too. These bombs are made by people like me and you, and we told that we hold a big stick over them. But I know, what I've read, that peace is in our hands. Over there in Guatemala, my friend, we're making mistakes there once again. Uncle Sam supports a fascist regime that doesn't represent the people over there, and we learn and believe. Justice for us all And we lie to ourselves With a big stick up our ass Now if we stand and yell it out That war is in what we're all about Someone will hear and bring us back To get the peace train back on its track Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Dan Kavalik. He is a labor and human rights attorney. He is also uh, at uh, the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, teaching international human rights. We're talking about Colombia and some of the issues more broadly uh, related to Colombia and internationally. And that's really where I want to focus uh, the remainder of our conversation, because nothing that happens in Colombia is happening independently. It is all directly connected to U.S policy. And so that's really, I think, what we need to be focusing on. So the first question I want to ask is, um, we hear a lot about the war on drugs, quote unquote. And and even recently, in, in recent years, it's become a little bit more uh, mainstream, I guess, to question some of the narratives on the war on drugs. But even in the way that people question it, I think it sort of uh, creates a false idea that somehow the United States uh, tried to fight the war on drugs and it's and it's lost the war. 
I would argue, in fact, that it never intended to fight a war on drugs. It merely uses that as a pretext for the creation of what amounts to military client states, Colombia being the primary among them. So I want to get your opinion on the relationship between Colombia and the United States. Is it still the military and paramilitary foothold for the United States in South America? Absolutely. And again, there are powerful forces in both Colombia and the U.S. that want to keep it that way. And as you noted, the U.S., first of all, after you know, Plan Colombia began in 2000 by President Clinton, again, ostensibly to wipe out drugs, since that time, there has been no decrease in coca production in Colombia or uh, the flow of cocaine into the U.S. from Colombia. Um, and so certainly if that were the intent to wipe out drugs, it was a complete and utter failure. In fact, the market value of cocaine has barely changed at all since since the beginning of Plan Columbia. Um, it's never been about wiping out drugs um, uh, entirely. It's about wiping out, you know, different sources of the drugs. For example, again, famously uh, – the DEA went after Pablo Escobar and the uh, Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. Meanwhile, they used and supported the cart the the Cali cartel to help wa- wipe out Pablo Escobar. And the result was there was still amount uh, the same amount of cocaine flowing out of Colombia just from Cali instead of Medellin. The U.S. has shown very little to no interest in stopping the flow of drugs. Another great example, frankly, is the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. Exactly. The Taliban had nearly wiped out the poppy crops in Afghanistan. Then we come in, we invade Afghanistan. Guess what? Afghanistan is now back up to to supplying the world with about 85% of the world's heroin. And so... Um, you know, our war, so-called wars on drugs, um, are a joke. Um, and again, the U S has, or sectors of the U S have been happy to run drugs in, in different areas. Of course, famously for the Contras, uh, famously during the Vietnam war. And so, uh, yeah, I think it is, it, it's silly to even even discuss the war on drugs is a real uh, war. In fact, another um, writer on Counterpunch, Douglas Valentine, I would I would urge people to read his books on the DEA and the drug war and see what, what a hypocrisy uh, that has been. And again, I think that the other side of this that we have to keep in mind uh, is that it's not simply a drug war. In other words, it's not just the DEA. It's not just the various agencies that are involved in prosecuting the drug war. You have direct tangible military ties between the United States, the Pentagon, and the government in Colombia, where Colombia is really the heart, the the, the beating heart of what's called Southcom, which is really the center, uh, the centerpiece of U.S. military architecture in the Western Hemisphere, at least, you know, in the in the southern part of the Western Hemisphere. And so in that way, Colombia is both ground zero for a fake drug war 
war, it's also ground zero for what amounts to the imperial policies of the United States, militarily speaking. So when Chavez would go on television and talk about U.S. military involvement in the paramilitaries in Colombia, he was pointing to very real, tangible realities that unfortunately have long survived Chavez. Yes, indeed. And, and, and for example, you mentioned uh, the Colombian interference in Venezuela. Colombian troops have also been sent to Honduras to train their uh, troops in counterinsurgency. Um, and really, we need to go back even before the FARC was created in 1964. The U.S. in 1962 saw Colombia as the epicenter of its effort to stamp out social change in Latin America. So in 1962, uh, Kennedy announced the national security doctrine. Noam Chomsky talks a lot about this. They sent General William Yarborough to Colombia to begin the implementation of the national security doctrine, which had nothing to do with national security and everything to do with wiping out the progressive forces in Latin America beginning in Colombia. And General uh, William Yarborough uh, uh, was very open about the need to create paramilitary forces in countries like Colombia in order to give deniability to both the Colombian and U.S. government for human rights abuses that he felt was necessary to wipe out trade unions, to wipe out uh, peasant leaders, to wipe out human rights uh, activists. And it was his policies um, that really grew throughout Latin America, beginning in Colombia. And so we see for now about 54 years, Colombia being this epicenter for the U.S.'s war on, on uh, progressive forces throughout Latin America. Absolutely right. And and the other the other aspect of that that I just want to mention too is that we're not simply talking about Colombian military as kind of a proxy of the United States. We're also talking about direct U.S. military engagement. Um, I'm just trying to find it now. Uh, I had a piece, gosh, it's, it's more than a year ago. It's called The U.S. and the Militarization of Latin America. This was in Telesur. I believe that we also published it in Counterpunch. And, you know, the numbers on U.S. special forces, special forces operating in Colombia is absolutely staggering. Here we go. In 2013, it was reported that in Colombia, former commander of U.S. Special Operations William McRaven said uh, supposedly that, quote, uh, deployments had ballooned to more than 65,000 throughout Latin America. This is just the special forces under Southcom. 65,000. I mean, is that not an invasion? Well, yes, and, and, and we operate in Colombia alone from seven different bases, again, to, to make sure that there is not social change throughout Colombia and Latin America that impacts upon U.S. investment in those countries. Absolutely right. And, and, you know, again, I mean, the numbers in terms of dollars are absolutely staggering as well. Uh, Three billion, three billion to Colombia in just five years from 2010 to 2015. 
three billion dollars think about that and then think about that in co in collaboration with initiatives like carsi which is the central american regional security initiative which is essentially plan colombia for central america so you start putting these things together you start tallying up the numbers the united states is spending tens of billions of dollars a year between the Merida Initiative, Plan Columbia, Carsey, and by the way, Carsey, that's an Obama initiative. You can't even pin that one on Bush. So the kind of imperialism that the U.S. is practicing in Latin America is quite frankly the same old neocolonial tactic. Yeah, and again, uh, there was a huge movement in the, in the U.S. for for a number of years opposing that sort of 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 counterinsurgency in Latin America and yet it's pretty quiet right now which is is quite disappointing no doubt about it now i i just want to get a sense of how people in colombia people of the left in colombia are sort of responding to these to these latest developments and seeing it as part of a broader uh you know continuum of issues here so for instance i know some leftists who when this peace deal was negotiated and and announced they were like well the farc is now dead as soon as they lay down their arms they're going to be slaughtered because that's what's historically happened in colombia i, I want to get a sense people in colombia do they see it that way as well or are they seeing this as genuinely a new chapter well i mean the folks i work with in colombia definitely see this as the potential for a new chapter and they do believe that these peace accords are the only hope for uh social change in colombia at the same time there is a very real and reasonable fear of exactly what you said that exactly what happened in the 80s that the FARC will lay down its arms that that uh, not only the former FARC combatants but also those uh, leftists who are never involved in armed struggle are, are going to be wiped out that essentially it's going to be uh, you know open season on leftists in Colombia and there is some evidence that that is happening as we speak Again, that's the article I wrote about this week, that, that there are a, a number of assassinations happening um, every few days of peasant leaders, union leaders, human rights leaders, peace leaders. And unless people of goodwill uh, from the U.S. and other countries support and accompany those people, there very well may be another mass extermination of leftist leaders in Colombia. I want to I want to ask this question: To what extent does the left in Colombia feel weakened now that they don't really have a Venezuela that they can count on to back them? See, that's part of the problem here: is that as the oil prices collapsed and as Venezuela's economic situation has become increasingly dire, both I mean, it must be said through corruption and mismanagement, but I would say primarily due to an economic war of subversion uh, waged both within Venezuela by the former elites, the, the, the bourgeoisie, and also, of course, by the United States on the outside. But to what extent does the left now feel forced to deal 
because they can't count on international support either from Venezuela or from, you know, from Korea in Ecuador or in Bolivia or now obviously from the Cubans. So in other words, as the Cubans are making deals with the United States and the uh, the, the the left in Colombia is making deals with the Colombian U.S. proxies, is this the left realizing that its power has been taken away? Well, I don't see the the the, the peace accords are a function of 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 the Latin American left weakening, and because uh, you know. The FARC and the government began to negotiate these peace accords, you know, while Chavez was still alive, and and the Venezuelan left was very strong, while Fidel was still alive, and the Cuban um, revolution was was uh, probably in a stronger position. Uh, when Argentina and Brazil were still led by you know ostensibly left wing governments, so I don't think that the peace accords are are a reflection. Of the weakness of the left, but certainly leftists in Colombia are painfully aware of how isolated the left is in Latin America, and certainly it has an impact on their lives and and how much um, you know space they feel they have politically. And again, not only um, because of the weakness of the left in Latin America, but again because of the la- the weakness of the left in North America. I mean, there was a time. When, you know, the left in the United States was was doing a lot more for the Latin American left, was speaking out for them, was accompanying them, was going down and do, doing coffee brigades and sugar brigades. And, and that is not happening by and large, certainly not in the numbers that was happening uh, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And in fact – you know, people. A lot of people on the left have been, frankly, fooled by the media um, about the nature of the government in Venezuela, right? And about the nature of the left in Colombia. You know, to the, to the effect that uh, our support has been greatly weakened, and, and and that's a huge problem for those folks. One other question I have is something that is literally, I mean, almost never discussed. You really have to do some research to find it. And that's a uh, little publicized agreement a couple of years ago between NATO, that is NATO, the NATO, that is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, U.S. military power projection in Europe, and an agreement with the Colombian government to have what they call NATO-Colombia cooperation. Now, that is something that almost nobody has discussed, but I find that pretty interesting when you take that against the backdrop of uh, increased engagement from the Chinese, from the Russians, from the Iranians, from a number of other countries over the last decade or so in Latin America. Now, I understand uh, circumstances have changed, particularly in the last couple of years, but that trajectory really opened the door for NATO to get into Colombia as well. Um, have you heard anything about that? Because a couple of years ago, Nicaragua's president, Daniel Ortega, the you know well-known, well-respected leader of the Sandinista movement, called it a knife in the back of the people of Latin America. I wonder whether people are even discussing it anymore. Yeah, you know, uh, honestly, Eric, uh, I had forgotten about it until you just mentioned it. But yeah, I remember that happening as well. 
I have not heard much written about it or discussed. I don't know if it's if it's anything more than symbolic, but it certainly is a symbol is very important. It shows how critical Colombia is uh, to the United States and other imperial powers like uh, Great Britain, uh, in particular to um, to their dominance over Latin America. It shows um, that really Colombia is uh, in the, in the view of of the United States in particular, the last bulwark in Latin America against the left. And so what happens in Colombia will really um, have a huge impact on what happens throughout this hemisphere, which again means that the left should be much more active and much more aware about what's happening in Colombia because the U.S. certainly values it as its friend against the left, and we should be adopting Colombia as well to fight that battle against reaction. Absolutely. Two points on that. Number one, Colombia should be understood in the same way that we now understand uh, Honduras. In other words, Honduras is the U.S. military foothold for Central America. You look at the U.S. troop movements into Honduras, they go from Honduras outward. In other words, that's the epicenter, and then from there they radiate outward towards El Salvador, towards Guatemala, towards uh, other countries in the region. And then similarly, in South America, you have Colombia as an epicenter with U.S. military presence radiating outward from there, although perhaps in a somewhat more covert way. And I think that that sort of framework for understanding what U.S. military is doing in the region, I think that is really important so that people have that in their minds. Absolutely. And again, there are seven military bases there uh, from which the U.S. operates out of. Um, the, the U.S. has made it clear that they see Colombia and those bases as a means of projecting of, uh, 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 of regional power projection. Exactly right. Yep. And again, what that means for leftists in the U.S. is that we have to resist that. And uh, I don't see much activity around Colombia or Venezuela, frankly, amongst the left in the U.S. And, and I really urge folks to get involved, you know. One, one, one final question uh, kind of to that point, and maybe this is something of a pipe dream, I guess, but I, you know, I don't know. Um, in the 1980s, the solidarity movement, uh, you know, in solidarity with the peoples of uh, Central America against the death squads that were backed by the U.S., uh, that was, to a large extent, it must be said, galvanized by the hard right-wing policies of Ronald Reagan and the Reagan administration. And I think that it's a legitimate uh, question to ask whether or not we would have had such a vibrant movement in the 1980s had there not been a Reagan to really galvanize the left, and I'm wondering, is there any chance that Trump is that galvanizing force now? Well, I certainly think that Trump will galvanize progressive forces in the United States, uh, uh, you know, around a lot of issues. Whether it's going to be around uh, Latin American issues, I'm not certain. I think what happened in the 80s with the Latin American left was frankly a continuation of the opposition to the Vietnamese War or the U.S. War in Vietnam, right? Yeah. A lot of the – a lot of my mentors in the 80s were folks who were active in the war against Vietnam. And a lot of folks saw the war in Central America as, as kind of an extension uh, uh, of that war in Vietnam. 
So you had people very skilled and very experienced who helped lead that movement. Um, I guess there's less of those people around, but also you had, let me just say, a revolutionary imagination that that I fear, I feel, and I fear maybe has dissipated in this country. Right? There was in the '60s, in the '70s, and even in the '80s a feeling that the left and that socialism could take hold throughout the world. And I certainly felt that, you know, and you felt you were a bit uh, part of a bigger struggle in that regard. I don't think people feel that as much now. So that's why I think, and this deserves a, a lot lo a larger discussion, but a lot of of the movement in the U.S. has kind of devolved into identity politics, into very isolated struggles, because folks don't see kind of a grander struggle towards socialism that they did in the decades I mentioned. And I think it's that lack of revolutionary imagination uh, that is missing more than, frankly, a right-wing kind of foil. Um, and I think it's up to us, uh, the counterpunchers of the world, to try to revive that revolutionary imagination and spirit in people. Beautifully said. I, I, I couldn't have said that better myself. We're going to have to leave it there. Dan Kavalik, I'm very, um, very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm, I'm very happy. Why <laughs> was happy so hard for me to find? I, I'm very uh, grateful for you uh, coming on the show. Uh, again, Dan Kavalik, labor and human rights attorney, uh, teaching international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Follow his work on Counterpunch regularly. Uh, Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Eric, thanks for having me. I'd love to come back anytime. Listeners, thank you, thank you as always. Speak to you again next week.